Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Kat Arney. This week we have a special Q&A show and our panel of experts will be tackling your science-related questions, including why don't satellites crash into each other in space? Should we be colonising Mars? And what is that smell just before it rains? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, to introduce our panel, we have with us today in the studio Richard Hollingham. He's space boffin and space travel expert. We also have Max Sanderson, neuroscience expert and science communicator. And, of course, our very own Chris Smith, couldn't do a show without him, who specialises in all things medical and pretty much anything else, I reckon. Uh, my own specialist subject is genetics and cancer. And we're going to kick off with a question for Richard. So we've had a question from Mark Pavlik, and he says... Given our current technological level, is it really possible for us to colonise Mars? If so, how? And if not, what are the barriers? Yes, is the short answer. Yay! Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Let's all go. Oh, let's go here well, now. One of the barriers must be about two, two million, thirty-seven million kilometres. Yeah, two hundred twenty-five million kilometres away. Uh, Furthest. Yeah. Yes, it's even closer sometimes. Though, yeah, it? it is. It is closer sometimes. Um, so there are lots of things you have to do, and the technology is there to do the things to get there. At least we would probably want to assemble a spacecraft in orbit. There is no spacecraft currently capable of getting there. Then you need to fly to Mars. That's going to take, you know, at least six months if you time everything right. You will need a spacecraft you can move around in, you can exercise in, because it would be quite funny in a way if they land on Mars, they get out and they all fall over because they can't walk anymore because their bones are are not strong enough. So you get there and you land. That's all doable. That's been done. That's just an engineering problem. That's an engineering problem. We can do that. It's been a bit hit and miss, but. In the last few missions have all been successful. We have got to Mars. Survival is an interesting one. Now, you could survive in the same way that astronauts survive on the International Space Station so right just now. just like in a pod and just kind of staying you, in yes, there? Yes, you could be in a fairly, you know, a, large, a large-ish area. You could maybe have an inflatable base or something like that and rely on constant supplies from Earth. So every few months, send another rocket off, it lands, they've got supplies for another 
few months. They could try growing things, so hydroponics or maybe even use Martian soil to grow things. In theory, that works. It's a bit hit and miss. Things have been grown, but in the Earth's atmosphere, very successfully in Antarctica. You can create an artificial soil. They know that works. Space station experiments have been a bit hit and miss. The Mars Society has had a, a base in Utah, and they've been doing a lot of this stuff. And you asked them about whether the food was edible. They said they grew, the, to quote, they grew a lot of interesting things, but none of them were edible. Okay. So that's an issue. So you can get there. You can survive, I would say, probably. And actually, you know, a, a few more years, we'll probably be there in that. The big, the big issue is coming back because NASA have not yet managed to even get a canister size, a coffee cup size a capsule of Martian material back to Earth successfully. So, I'm getting the feeling that this would be a one-way trip. <laughs> well, that's what Mars One are proposing. That's this uh, this Dutch organisation. Their funding is a little up in the air at the moment, but they're, they're serious people, and that's what they propose, a one-way trip to Mars. So you go to Mars, you go to Mars, live out the rest of your life, and you die. Okay. The radiation's a big issue, though, isn't it? Because we saw the Curiosity mission, they actually used the radiation sensor on the Curiosity rover during its nine-month trip to Mars. It logged a radiation dose of about two-thirds of what NASA considered to be a safe lifetime working dose of radiation just on that one journey. And then there was another paper out just recently, Charles Limoli from the States published this paper, where they exposed uh, mice to the sorts of high-energy cosmic particles that you would encounter in space once you escape from the Earth's sort of protective envelope of our magnetic field. And these mice all got changes in their brains. They, it looked like someone, someone had come along and sort of pruned the hedge because all of the, the nerve cells had fewer connections. As a, as a geneticist, I find this interesting because if the idea is you'd send people to Mars and they would, you know, get busy and make new people on Mars, uh, if they've actually been exposed to a lot of radiation, that could make some fundamental changes in the, the DNA of their eggs and sperm. And then maybe a sort of super evolution. <laughs> it's a very interesting thing to well, think Well, I about. mean, there are other issues there. Um, you're ter in terms of population size, you need thousands of people to prevent genetic defects. Uh, prevent cousins breeding with cousins. because yeah, otherwise and you're, you're recreating the sort of the Egyptian dynasty, aren't you, where sort of exactly. brothers and sisters marry exactly. each other. Exactly. So you've got problems to start with. Once you're on Mars, a lot of the concept bases are actually underground. So they eliminate the problems of radiation on Mars. I think the problem of getting to Mars, that's probably surmountable. They're looking at new shielding techniques, probably using water, something like that, within the spacecraft. So that's probably OK. I mean, my fundamental problem with this, why? Why would you want to go to Mars? Mars is bleak, cold, barren. I mean, you, you could just go to Newmarket. <laughs> <laughs> it's a horrible, horrible place. And you just don't, I, I wouldn't recommend it. As places to go, I don't think it's a very interesting place. I think what would be more interesting is some sort of colony in space. But to be fair, when the first settlers arrived in Australia and landed in what is now Sydney, they said, this is a horrible, horrible place, we want to be here. Now, now it's one of the world's most beautiful cities. Yeah, but just think what Mars could be, breathe. Richard. Just even, what... even, Chris, even in Australia, there is air to breathe. There is not air to breathe on Mars. Leaving that there with us, I'm sure there's so there's much we could talk joke about. Opportunity there because, of course, they were going to make a, a sort of they were going to make a, a nightclub on the moon, of course. But then someone said no atmosphere. No atmosphere. Oh, yeah. Dear. Um, anyway, we've had a question in from Belinda, so uh, let's hear this one. I had a fellow nurse at work 
dare me to rotate my right foot and leg clockwise whilst drawing the number 6 with my right hand. He also asked me to rotate my right foot and leg clockwise whilst turning my right hand wrist anti-clockwise as he was told no one could do this. However, I did it with absolute ease oh. on the first go, the second go and so on with no practice. It's not working for me. What does this mean? <laughs> How is my brain different? And is this bad that it's so easy for me to do? Can anyone else do this? I, I've just failed dismally. I can't do this. I'm, I'm trying and my I'm hands just, just go just the same way. Well, let's, let's see if Max has got any answers because you're a neuroscience kind of guy. What do you reckon's going on here, Max? Even though I'm a neuroscience kind of guy, I definitely can't do it. So I'll put that out there. And this is one of the oldest sort of neuroscience party tricks in the book. Uh, not that I've ever been to a neuroscience party, but I'm sure they're a great fun. <laughs> and it's a sort of very basic neuroanatomical aspect of the brain that's been exploited. And it's the fact that we have these two hemispheres, left and right. And the motor cortex, which sort of allows for the execution of these kind of movements, is, is privy to this split. So as, as most people know, the right side controls the left side of the body and the left side of the brain controls the muscles on the right side. Um, and this is why if you try to do it with opposing uh, hands and feet, it should work. And the reason why this happens is because the sort of regions within your motor cortex um, that control your hand and foot, there's conflicting orders. And because it's the same side of the motor cortex, that these orders are coming out from the they sort of go into proverbial battle. Um, with the hands usually winning over. But the interesting part, I think, comes in, in, in why we may be programmed. And it's sort of an evolutionary thing. Uh, the theory is that when we were sort of on all four limbs, uh, you'd need a coordination between your left hand and your left you foot. You want your hands and feet going in the same direction. Exactly. Okay. So it's a coordinated movement. And so this is sort of an anti-coordination. And so, I mean, most people aren't sort of programmed for that anti-coordination. So, but Belinda says that she could do it quite easily. Is she just kind of some freak? Uh, well, no. So so I think she asked, um, part of her question was, is this bad? And no, Belinda, this isn't bad. And um, she's not alone. There are a small cohort of people who, who also share her ability. And, and in fact, there's sort of a spectrum of people. So some people will be better at it than others. Some people will need less training to sort of get the hang of it. But there's the, the key, isn't it, Max? Because you've just said the T word, training. Because yeah. we, we can do almost anything if we train hard enough. Because someone asked me the other day, oh, how was it that when I um, broke my right hand and I had to write with my left, I could do it after a while and they were almost surprised that they could nonetheless learn to write with their left hand. Well exactly and it sort of uh, points out how sort of plastic that's what um, neuroscience people call the brain it's very um, there's a lot of plasticity it's very sort of it can be rewired and restructured and so in, in Belinda's brain um, whilst we don't have a sort of MRI scanner that can tell us exactly what it is that's different um, for some reason her motor cortex this anti-coordination either innately or through training is 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 fine to happen and so I think that that's it really her, her brain sort of allows this anti-coordination and and I think if people did train people would be surprised at how quickly they could rewire their brain as no. they say oh, nice work Belinda Kat there's one here for you uh, John from uh, Atlanta says why not genetically modify cow horns to make them into ivory and then we wouldn't have to poach elephants I love this idea I think this is such a great idea unfortunately it's not going to work because the problem is, is that the substance that makes up ivory is basically teeth. Same thing as your teeth. It's, uh, it's teeth and tusks. They're dentine covered with this hard white enamel. So 
in terms of the development of where the teeth come from and where uh, ivory tusks come from, it's all kind of part of the toothy stuff. But cow horns are actually made of bone, living bone, covered with a really thick layer of kind of keratin. That's the same protein that's in your skin, your hair, your nails, that kind of thing. And so they have a completely different developmental origin. They're uh, growing out of the skull. So to actually switch cow horns into making ivory, you're asking basically bones to turn into teeth and grow in a completely wrong place because cow's teeth obviously grow in their mouths, not out of the top of their heads. So although it's a lovely idea, I don't think that's going to work. So I would like to hear some news. It's time for the news this week. And Chris, what news story have you got for us? Well, something that's doing the rounds is this whole idea about people hacking into aeroplane computer systems and taking control of aeroplanes while they're up in the air. And uh, there's a gentleman who's an ethical hacker. He's called Chris Roberts. He actually founded something called One World Labs. It's a Colorado-based organisation. And what he basically does is hacks into things, or he and his organisation hack into systems and expose vulnerabilities. And then they tell people, this is where you have a vulnerability. You should do something about it. Anyway, he's had a bit of a run-in with the FBI over in the States because he apparently was on an aeroplane in April and he tampered with the in-flight system, the entertainment system, and was caught subsequently apparently having done this. I mean, it's an allegation. I don't think they can prove it yet, but they've said certainly the seat he sat in and had the in-flight entertainment system having been tampered with. And what they found is that, uh, or he has told the FBI, that he has managed to connect to the in-flight entertainment system using his laptop, override the security on that, get into the main plane control system, and then, to prove his point, actually got into the engine management system and issued a climb command to the engine, making the aeroplane change course. He says he only did it for a little while, um, but uh, it was enough to put the aeroplane into a slightly different trajectory than it would have been. And, uh, and he said, I've told them about this on a number of occasions, and actually nothing has yet been done. But they've now uh, basically had him in for questioning a few times because uh, of this tampering with this other aeroplane on a flight to New York. And um, they've confiscated loads of his gear. Um, but uh, this, I think, highlights a very important point, which is why are aircraft entertainment systems still in connection with the rest of the aircraft's computer system? Shouldn't they automatically just be ring-fenced from each other? I mean, it's frightening, isn't it? It does seem absolutely extraordinary that they're not two completely separate systems. And that they've that they're not designed separately they, they've evolved separately but to, to coordinate them all together seems just incredible to me um but i do wonder though about the ethics of this the ethics of telling people and making this sort of information public it's the same ethics i suppose the people who put you know this is how to make a bomb or this is how to do do this i do wonder about that I mean, wait, well, I maybe he's, he's going out there putting a how-to guide on the internet. I think what no, he's saying he's is I've gone to the it's... authorities and said mm. I think this is a very uh, big vulnerability. Mm. If I can sit in an aeroplane seat A3 on this flight from Chicago to Syracuse, New York, and I manage to access the engine management system, uh, so could anybody. I mean, how do we know that people haven't? We've had these aeroplanes disappear. I mean, this Malaysia Airlines flight that disappeared, no one's located it yet. Could this be a victim of something like this? We know something nefarious happened. It's very, very weird. I, I think that it's important. I mean, clearly he's not really got anywhere so he's blowing the whistle and saying they're not taking this seriously um, and I do find it worrying that their answer is to just confiscate his stuff and slam him in for questioning. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of comments on the uh, website for I had a look at. Uh, I was just interested in what other people's opinion were of this because people I thought might have the same opinion you did, Richard. We shouldn't be doing this. Um, why are people hacking into things? This is bad. But actually, lots of people are, are saying what Kat's saying, that, um, in fact, if it wasn't for people going out there and highlighting these vulnerabilities, making them public, it certainly makes people do something about them quick. Because at the end of the day, he's saying that Boeing and Airbus aeroplanes, and there's quite a few of them, are vulnerable. And there's quite a few of them in the air. So there's therefore, if he's capable of doing it, lots of other people will be. I wonder if this is as a result of the way the technology has evolved. If someone set out to make an aircraft today, they wouldn't do something like this. But entertainment systems have evolved. They probably became a bolt-on to the main system. There's probably some power linking there. It's probably the way the whole power of the aircraft is controlled, something like that. It's just security because James Line, who works for the company Sophos, we had him on this programme last September, and he said to me, I've just bought myself... um, uh, a sort of meat cooker, one of these slow cookers that you can plug in. He said, like all modern gadgetry, it's part of the internet of things, it's on the internet. So, so I can dial in from work and I can activate my slow cooker. So being the security online specialist that he is, he thought, well, I wonder if they've been sloppy with their security. I wonder if I can identify a lot of these online cookers and uh, and therefore... Uh, can I manipulate them? And he found absolutely they hadn't changed the admin password. It was a default system. It's a default login with a default password. He said, I was able to find loads and loads of people who have these cookers. And he said, if I wanted to, I could go into their kitchen and online ruin dinner. and I could just, I could, I could ruin their dinner for them. Ah, oh, technology, isn't it wonderful? Um, we'll move on to another question now. Richard, I've got a question for you from Harry in Johannesburg. And he says, he wants to know, why do satellites in orbit not collide with each other? There's hundreds of these flying objects in space um why doesn't this happen there are actually hundreds of thousands of these objects in space so there are an estimated half a million pieces of what's called space debris particularly in low earth orbit so that's where an awful lot of the satellites are not the communication satellites so not the satellites we use for for broadcast or for pinging mobile phone calls around the world but the sort of satellites that maybe observe observe the earth um, sort of satellites, particularly scientific satellites and spacecraft with humans in them. So the International Space Station, for instance, is in this particular orbit. Now, these half a million objects vary from flecks of paint, and these can cause severe damage. You imagine this stuff is pinging around the Earth at, uh, what, uh, almost eight metres per second around the Earth. So you've got all this stuff pinging around the Earth. The bigger stuff is about 20,000 pieces of space debris. And this is tracked by the US. It's tracked here in the UK by the the RAF using using radar. So they know where all this stuff is. And you think the Earth is pretty big, actually. That sounds a lot, but the Earth's pretty big. Now, obviously, you don't want to hit one of these when you're launching a satellite. So they launch into orbits where there isn't this stuff. So they're tracking the stuff continuously. They don't know where the flecks of paint are. You've got pretty good odds that you're not going to hit a fleck of paint. So they do launch into orbits. They're very careful where they launch. They don't want to launch into the orbit of, say, Envisat, which is a big, redundant... It suddenly went dead uh, a couple of years ago. European satellite, uh, size of a double-decker bus. You don't want to put your satellite in the same orbit as that. So when you're when you're planning a satellite mm. for a, a, an orbit for a satellite, it's basically about how fast and exactly the, sort of the angle you shoot it up over the Earth. At. You you work all this stuff out. What's also interesting? So that's into low Earth orbit. If you are launching, say, a telecommunication satellite. Now, these sit in what are called geostationary orbits. So essentially, they orbit the Earth as the same speed the Earth rotates. So they sit upon above the same part of the Earth all the time. Sky TV, for instance, has one of, you know, above Europe right now, 
beaming down to people's satellite dishes on the sides of their house. Yeah, Other channels are available. (laughs) Other channels are available. But if you want, okay, sport on the BBC. If you watch that from around the world, that'll come via satellite. Um, They actually have to navigate their way through this space debris. So not only the satellites that are orbiting, they actually plan and sometimes they have to divert their course. So imagine, you know, crossing the road, they're having to weave between the traffic wow. to get up to this to this high orbit. So these are all things they take into account. It sounds this- like a, a stellar version of Frogger. Um, <laughs> let, let's move on to another question. We've got a question now for Max um, and this one's from Maria. Do we have uh, some audio for this? My name is Maria. And I listen to you every week from Sao Paulo, Brazil. I'm wondering what crying is from the neurophysiological standpoint. What's happening when one's anguished or sad and really feels like crying? Is that different from when we just cry without the option of holding back? Do tears for different emotions or physical pain come from the same process? Thanks. So, Max, what do you reckon? Why do we cry and what's going on? Uh, Well, yeah, so it's really interesting, actually. Crying as it's found in humans is actually exclusively only found in humans. And so that's uh, crying with what are known as emotional tears. Other animals have functional tears that lubricate the eye and stuff. But in humans, it's evolved sort of exclusively, as, as far as we know. It's sort of a communication thing. And, you know, when we began to form societies... Without language, it was hard to sort of express your your inner emotions. And, you know, you only need to look at a crying baby or infant to see the the power of crying in that communicative sense. So it sort of attracts aid, uh, whether emotional, physical or or medical. And I think it's become more than that now. It's not just about sort of pain or or needing attention. There's there's very sort of, it's deep-seated with our emotions. So whether or not you can sort of hold it back, I think is is more to do with how sort of strong the emotion is as to an actual sort of neurophysiological thing but some, somewhere along the way our sort of limbic system has gained control over our tear glands the lacrimal glands and so now you have this sort of when when one can activate the other but i think the important part of, of the question is is the relief aspect um, yeah yeah why does why does a good cry feel so good yeah well i mean we've known for centuries the sort of benefits of a good cry and i there, there wasn't much you know i could find on this uh, there was a sort of very old study that's that talked about the excretion of, of cortisol through tears but that's sort of since been discredited and yeah it's a bit ropey i reckon yeah isn't, isn't there evidence that you can manipulate your partner's mood through things being exuded in tears. I, there was a study on ladies' tears manipulating men's moods. Yeah, well, so it was basically... I, I just that... cry and they just buy me things. <laughs> well, it was actually well, the opposite. It works, doesn't it? <laughs> that study was actually the opposite and it, it showed that men were, were found to be um, sort of less attracted to women when they had uh, <laughs> women's tears. Um, I think it was women oh, in dear. photos and they were, were given sort of their tears and, and they found them less attractive. Just but... think what they'd buy you if you didn't cry then, <laughs> Exactly. True. Um, but I think that the sort of why, uh, there's obviously no um, standard answer as, as generally in neuroscience, it's all sort of hypotheses. So I've come up with one of my own and oh, yeah. uh, and that's uh, from an unlikely source as to why we might feel relief from crying. And it's from laughter. It's a similar thing to sort of laughter. And again, laughter is unique in humans. Um, it's marvellously effective at communicating our inner sort of emotions and, and also acting as a social lubricant. And in a really fascinating paper by Professor Robin Dunbar, he showed that, that laughing could actually increase our pain threshold. Um, and he talked about endorphins, which are our sort of body's own painkillers. And he talked about how the act of laughing, which in itself is quite physically strenuous, um, could lead to the release of these endorphins, sort of similar to after exercise, and and thus make us feel good. And I think crying, in some sense, it, it could be applied to that as well, the release of these endorphins. And that sort of got me thinking about 
when we're younger, when we're children and infants, we cry through pain uh, because of pain. And it um, might be making us feel better, you reckon? Yeah, and so because we've sort of conditioned this crying to be associated with pain, generally when our body is in pain, we up our endorphin release. And so maybe into adult life, when one would hope that crying from pain is less so, that, that maybe that's sort of a conditioned response. Well, the, the Max Sanderson theory. We should do some research. You're listening to the Naked Scientist Q&A special with me, Kat Arney. So now it's time to go back to our news. Richard, what have you got for us in the news this week? So the story that I think uh, what particularly interests me is this um, Russian rocket. You may miss this story because it was only on the news yesterday evening. You probably had better things to do. Um, a Russian rocket carrying a satellite burnt up over Siberia. Now, this is interesting because it's another Russian rocket failure. This is a proton rocket. It was carrying a Mexican satellite. Now, rockets fail. They're really difficult to build a rocket and launch it successfully into orbit. But Russian rockets fail an awful lot and have been failing an awful lot, particularly over the last six years. There have been 13 failures, three partial failures, 20 spacecraft lost, which compares to the um, European Ariane rocket where they've had no failures and the Americans who launch an awful lot more and they've just had three failures. Now this matters because we have a lot of of our European satellites, a lot of worldwide satellites launched on these Russian rockets. So for example, the European ExoMars mission, which is due for launch in January 2016, that is scheduled to fly on a proton rocket. So it's not looking good. They have some serious quality control issues. And in fact, exactly a year to the day where this latest proton failed, another proton had failed. Do they know what's going wrong with them? There's lots of little quality control issues, usually in the upper stages. So a rocket has multiple stages. It has the the big bit at the bottom. And in fact, the proton is an enormous rocket. It has these strap-on boosters around the bottom. So it's like a firework with lots of little fireworks stuck around the, the bottom. So that launches off and then the first section drops away and you're onto the second stage and the third stage, which takes it up to the exact the exact orbit. And I think with this one, it looks like there's a problem with either the second stage or the third stage. So it meant it, it went up and just came back down again like a, like a missile. <laughs> but it's just, it's such a shame. Russia led the world in rocketry. I mean, they were the first to put a man in space. They were the first to put a satellite in space. They're essentially using the same technology. And there seems to be an issue with transferring that knowledge from the older generation who started this, who built these amazing machines, to a younger generation. We should be worried. We should be worried if we want the latest telecommunication satellites. We should be worried if we want a mission to Mars that there's not the the quality in rockets that there was. Let's hope they fix that. Chris, I've got a quick question for you, which I wanted to know. Uh, This is from Tom Costema, and he says, what is that smell of rain? As it's been so sunny recently, we'll have rain to inevitably ruin this sunshine. What is that kind of smell that you get just before the rain? And and why does it sometimes happen and sometimes not happen? People don't actually know for sure exactly what it is. Yeah, it's got this fascinating petrichor because Petros uh, in Greek means rocky and core of course means smells and the bottom line here is that no one knows exactly what it is but a lady in the 1970s name was Nancy Gerber she actually did some chemical experiments and made some measurements and she found that there were several chemicals some of which coincide with a soil bug called actinomycetes these filamentous bugs live in the soil and grow throughout the soil. They break down various detritus and things that's in the soil. And a product of their metabolism, 
a bit like sort of microbial poo, if you like, are these chemicals. And when the raindrops come down, they splat into the ground and they elevate particles of these microorganisms and their byproducts and their metabolic waste into the air and it happens to have this kind of smell. One name that's given to it is geosmin for one of the chemicals that's up there. It's nice, isn't it? But interestingly, there was another paper that came out from MIT earlier this year. Cullen Buey and his colleagues actually said, well, it's all very well saying, well, raindrops splatter on the ground and they uh, release these particles from the ground. But how do they do it? That was their question. And they, they did some beautiful photography where they used a very fast camera of raindrops splatting down against the ground. If you look carefully at very, very detailed pictures of these raindrops landing, what you see are almost like bubbles of champagne coming up through a champagne glass coming up in the raindrop. What they speculate is that as the drop hits the ground, it compresses and captures a little bleb of or particulate matter and air, some bubbles, as it lands. And that stuff then has to come bubbling up through the liquid. And as it does so, it carries with it some of these particles which are in the soil and they get aerosolised or distributed out into the air and then you can smell them. But this doesn't happen all the time. So presumably it's when the conditions are just right, the right weight of rain and the right kind of soil. If you've had relentless rain day after day after day, then it's damped down all the particles probably anyway. They've all, they've all been washed away or everything that's been thrown up into the air is there and you're already used to the smell because there's also this whole question of you adapt to the presence of a smell. You must have noticed you go around someone's house. You think, God, it's a bit whiffy in here, especially around your house. <laughs> and uh, after about Rude. five minutes, you stop noticing the smell. And that's because you have adapted your nose has learned that that smell is always there so when you notice this most is when it hasn't been present so you've had a long profound pronounced dry spell lots of the uh, stuff is in dry soil easy to release into the air comes down splat up into the air you breathe it in and you really notice it and that's what we think geosmin is one for you cat oh, yeah. arlene right has got in touch and she she's a very interesting question this she says i saw an advert for personalized skin care based on genetic analysis so is there really any rationale, she asks, for gene-based skincare regimens? Now, I was intrigued by this, and uh, so I went to look it up, and it's a company called GeneU, and this is actually a spin-out from Imperial College. Uh, this is researchers who've developed a very, very tiny DNA analyzer. They call it their lab on a chip. Now, they didn't just do this to look at skincare. Um, they actually did it just as a more general way of uh, developing something very small that could analyze DNA. Now, this isn't the kind of DNA analysis where you're looking at lots and lots and lots of genes. They're just looking at variations in just a couple of genes, and Geneticists call these SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms. And the kind of, you know, the genetic variation that makes us all unique, some of us more unique than others. But so they're looking at a couple of these SNPs, these variations that have been linked to things like collagen in the skin, the amount of collagen you have and all this kind of thing. And then they go, ta-da, we go this and this and this and look at this. And so you have this wonderful serum matched to your SNPs that relate to your skin. Now, that's all kind of interesting, but to me, I think that the data is somewhat lacking. I've done a bit of looking into this. Certainly evidence that the SNPs that affect things to do with your skin and then linking that to the effects of a specific skincare regime, I think is somewhat lacking at the moment. Although, you know, I don't want to be too down on it because it's really cool technology. The lab on the chip stuff is very cool. Um, and the guy who invented it, this professor at Imperial, said it's a good way to get people to start interacting with their genomes, with their genetics. Uh, but to be honest, when it comes to skincare, I think it's probably there's more influence of lifestyle things like not smoking, taking care of the sun. Yeah, because smoking has a really profound ageing effect, doesn't it? Uh, much more so than any influence of your genes, I reckon. 
There's a phone call here from uh, Mark. Hello, Mark. Hello, Chris. Hello, Kat. Hello. How are you what, doing? Oh. All right? Yeah, what you got for us? Right, it's uh, for the uh, zero gravity man. It's <laughs> <laughs> never been described as that before, Richard. Yeah, yeah, Richard, yeah. you have no gravity. <laughs> that would be so cool. <laughs> Very quickly, it's, I, I'm always interested in general running of life on a space station, you know, working in a, a zero in gravity uh, environment. But obviously they have to work quite hard and uh, I imagine at the end of the day they would need to clean themselves. Uh, Do they have a shower? I can't envisage a bar full of uh, water uh, flopping about. So uh, how do they do that? Imagine you're living for six months in an area that's, I don't know, not much, but much but in total the area is, um, it's about the size of a football pitch, but it's lots of individual capsules with six other people with no shower because there is no shower on the International Space Station. They clean themselves with cloths, a bit like dishcloths. And in fact, they like have... wet wipes kind of thing. Sort of like wet wipes. This is what I do at music festivals. You kind <laughs> yeah. of, you know, just wipe but down with for a six wet months, wipe. For oh six God. months, they have have a ration of these and they have to exercise every day so they are sweating a lot this sweat is not doesn't not go to waste on the international space station so they recycle urine into drinking <laughs> oh, water they also cycle recycle sweat into oh, drinking water on God. the international space station oh, so and actually because you're in this microgravity environment because effectively there is there is no gravity i was talking to chris hadfield the uh, canadian astronaut about this and he said there's very awkward moments so he's exercising racing away sweating so sweat coming off him and other astronauts can get splatted by his sweat so you're walking down the corridor you get this big globule globule of someone else's sweat but yes it's not pleasant um so you talk to some of the space tourists they're a bit more open about what it's actually like Uh, apparently the toilet on the space station is horrible really horrible the atmosphere on on star trek or anything do you um the atmosphere found in the enterprise (laughs) toilet captain's log he said Um, it's not. It's not very nice. Men's locker room. That's what uh, one um, space tourist described it as. Smelling like a men's locker room because uh. they don't share. Skylab, which was the 1970s space station, um, around 1974, 75, something like that. Um, that did have a shower. So you, if you look back at images of people in space, you often see astronauts in this sort of bag almost like a sleeping bag they sort of assemble around with a shower hose. So they did have a shower on a 1970s space station, but not right now. Six people in orbit, no shower. Oh, God, that will smell like a music festival very quickly. You are listening to the Naked Scientist Q&A special. We have Chris Smith, we have Richard Hollingham, we have Max Anderson, and I'm Kat Arney. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, you can find us on Facebook, or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. We've got a question here for Max, and this is from Timire, uh, who says, how does colour affect how children think about food? Is there any kind of relationship between the influence of colour on food? You know, why do we uh, not want to eat sort of blue peas or something? What do you reckon, Max? Well, the the whole blue thing, um, actually, I was doing a bit of reading about it, and, and the argument was that there's nothing blue that occurs in nature, and therefore people don't want to eat blue food substances. But I think it was Skittles or Smarties came out with the blue... Um, sweet and found it was actually quite popular so i I don't think it's as much uh the color in itself but it's the association that we give uh between the color 
and the food. Um, and so sort of taste and flavor has often been, you know, if you think about the two senses uh, that sort of immediately swing to mind, that sort of taste and smell. And so uh, people are realizing that the perception of flavor is sort of more multi-sensory than we ever thought. And obviously vision is, is one of those things. Color back in the day would have, would have alerted us to a poisonous berry or the ripeness of a fruit or the safety of an old piece of meat. But I think uh, when it comes to sort of associations, uh, we we want something to, t- to taste how we expect it to based on, on vision. And, and so, like you were saying, um, why someone wouldn't want to eat a blue pea, uh, in the 1970s they did a quite famous and actually quite cruel study where they brought in subjects to eat um, french fries and steak uh, and it, they appeared normal, but actually they were sort of specially engineered lights um, to make them look normal. And actually halfway through the meal, after all the subjects had said they, they were having a rather nice time, they sort of turn on the normal lights uh, to reveal that the steak was actually blue and the french fries were green and upon doing that uh, apparently some people ran to the the toilet and got sick so i think when it comes to color and food it's the association so um there have been lots of studies where they sort of take a cherry flavored drink they diet orange and, and people sort of taste an orange flavored drink uh wine sommeliers they've they managed to trick them into sort of thinking that 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 a white wine was red. Uh, That's quite based. common, isn't it, Max, when that happens? Because th- there's quite a, an easy experiment you can do where you just pour two glasses of white wine or, or whatever and you you tell people that one's wet, red and one's white and can they tell the difference? They're identical and, and they all fall for it. Yeah, and, and I mean, it, it's one thing doing it to, to your mate on a Friday night, but the fact that they managed to do it to, to wine sommeliers uh, was, was quite an interesting one. They also even found that the way that they described two white wines uh, was, was dependent on the sort of lighting of the room. And so I think colour in, in food is very important because um, it sort of gives us these associations and we expect something to taste how it looks and, and uh, the fact that when you sort of trick these associations you see um, how important they are and I think even the packaging has, has been shown to so I mean this is something people could try at home if you put salt and vinegar crisps in a cheese and onion packet and, and give it to a mate or give it to to mum or dad and, and see if they, they manage to pick up on it but studies have shown that just by changing the packaging you can actually change the flavour someone well it did make stale food taste fresh by putting headphones on people feeding them off crisps you know the crisps that have gone all soft yeah and playing the crunching noises when the people were eating the stale crisps and they thought they were fresh because your brain sort of integrates the crinkliness and that's why the packets are really crinkly and sort of those um packets of crisps when you open them they make loads of noise because when you make that that nice crinkly noise it's a sort of an association your brain makes fresh things tend to be ripe and turgid and sort of yeah crunchy and therefore your brain says oh it must be fresh and so it sort of it it transfers and makes the food taste fresher than perhaps it is yeah and i mean apparently a lot of these sort of food companies have sound engineering departments uh who actually try and sort of design ways to make food sound uh even nicer (laughs) um in the same way that people will do the same uh with packaging and drinks and uh, I think it's something the food industry is all too aware of. So, so word of warning, we are all being exploited every single day by the food industry because they've sort of tapped into our brain. Oh, well, there you go. Um, here's a question for you, Chris. So we've had a question from Joe Barber who wants to know, does a fever raise temperature equally over the entire body? Um, for example, if a person has a fever, sometimes their head is more warm than their chest. Yeah, what, What's going on there? Well, first of all, why do you run a fever? You run a fever because... Some chemical is being produced in your body that triggers your brain's temperature regulating centre called your hypothalamus to turn up the thermostat. 
Why does this happen? Well, it can happen usually because you have an infection when microorganisms cause inflammation. They damage tissues, they release various inflammatory chemicals and also particles from the surfaces of the microorganism. The bacteria, for instance, have chemicals called lipopolysaccharide, LPS, which is part of the wall of the bacterium. This triggers your hypothalamus to sense that there is an infection and it turns up the set point for your body temperature and this triggers the release of more thyroxin, which increases your metabolic rate, and that makes you hotter, more adrenaline, which increases your metabolic rate, and that makes you hotter. It vasoconstricts you, so you move blood more towards the centre of your body, slowing down the rate at which you lose heat, and that puts your temperature up. There are other reasons why you might run a temperature, but those are the most common reasons. And that means that your core body temperature will go up and usually it can go up from a normal of about 37 degrees to perhaps 40 the highest ever recorded temperature in a human being actually 45 degrees and they survived it's pretty pretty impressive but most people don't go much beyond 40 the body does this because when you increase temperature you make it harder for infected microorganisms to grow you make it easier for your white blood cells to move around and you therefore frustrate the bug and benefit the body Uh, So it's a sort of defensive mechanism, but it won't happen equally everywhere for the simple reason that you're shunting blood towards your core, so the core will be warmer, but your peripheries may actually be shut down and cooler. But there will be a global increase in body temperature right across your body when you're running a temperature. So if you put your hand on someone's forehead, yes, it's going to feel warmer, but the best way of measuring the temperature is to get the core temperature, and that's the thermometer actually in your bottom. Nice. Uh, Now let's have some more news. And Max, what have you seen in the news for us this week? Uh, Yeah, so the news piece I read was in in The the Great New Scientist and it was uh, by someone called Professor Barbara Finley and she was putting forward an argument as to why humans, um, when compared to our sort of primate cousins, appear to have a heightened sense of pain. Uh, And so in evolutionary terms, pain is obviously very important um, to prevent us, sort of protect us from further damage and conditioned us to avoid certain situations and also make other individuals aware that we need assistance. And it's this that she sort of um, focused on and she talked about how her time in the field um, was spent around quite a lot of primates and she was always a bit baffled as to these monkeys who would have caesarean sections and then within hours were sort of sitting up and climbing and playing. And uh, having had two C-sections herself, it got her thinking that maybe humans, unlike our monkey relatives, have, have sort of evolved a mechanism whereby certain things such as um, giving birth uh, are deemed more painful for for beneficial reasons and so she argued that these sort of heightened pain responses um, give give us a sort of distinct advantage as humans that elicits a response from others that means they'll come and and give us assistance so giving birth to a child in humans can be very very dangerous and so by heightening our levels or our perceptions of pain on the whole it means that we demand to either have a midwife or a family member there um, and it, it means that hopefully the mother and the, the child both have a bigger chance of surviving. And I just thought it was fascinating. Anything to do with pain, I'm, I'm generally quite... Not, not I mean, the study of pain, <laughs> like not, pain. Not, not, not pain in itself, the Very study of pain. pain. Yeah, come on, Max, be honest. When we were chatting about this earlier, you said, yeah, I'm quite into pain. And then you sort of said, maybe I should rephrase that. I can't believe I did it again. I, I'd sort of made a note not to say that, but no, I'm to the study of pain. It, it's, it's a hugely fascinating thing because pain in itself is something that's completely created by a brain. Yes, there can be damage to a hand that you put on a hot stove and that sends sort of signals to the brain but but the pain in itself is something that we create as a reaction to that um, damage and so it's highly sort of subjective. I did interview a chap 
it was a little while ago now, but uh, Jeff Woods, who's a researcher at, in Cambridge, and he published a paper describing the genetic reason why there are certain families of people who live, I think these ones lived in Pakistan and Bangladesh, who are incapable of feeling pain. They lack a gene which normally would be used by the pain system in the body to trigger nerve impulses, and these people don't have those receptors on their nerves, so they can't trigger these pain responses and so they can do horrible things to themselves and they frequently do and they don't feel a thing isn't that awful yeah and that that's so it's that's the sort of nociceptors it, it can be quite dangerous though because it means he doesn't give himself time to heal thanks very much that's absolutely fascinating you are listening to the naked scientist q a special with me katani We've got a question in here for you, Richard, from Roy Bath Milax. And he says, since the human body is evolved to conditions present on Earth, what are some of the challenges that our bodies face during space travel? I mean, we've talked about the unpleasant toilets. So what else is going on? Can I quote some Star Trek to you? Um, Leonard Bones McCoy. I love this. Space is disease and danger wrapped in darkness and silence. It's horrible. It's really horrible. So let's let's just get to space first of all. Getting to space, you've got to overcome gravity and the g-forces pushing on your body. So you see those. Um, there's a James Bond film where he goes spinning around in the. It must be Moonraker, mustn't it? Where he spins around in the centrifuge and he's. he's um, yeah. Yes. Have you been in one of those? I have been in one yeah. of those. Did your face horrible. go like? I was oh. rubbish. I was absolutely. How many g's did you pull? I think I only managed about three. I think three. And how yeah. many wouldn't a real live a real astronaut? Be? Actually, you're probably with most spacecraft now. You're looking at three or four, about four, something like that. If the Soyuz, so we talked about a little bit about Russian rockets going wrong. If the Russian rocket goes wrong, the Soyuz they use, the escape system essentially will ping it off in a trajectory, and then you are heading towards almost ten g, something like that. It's really Ooh. nasty. Is that survivable? Uh, yes, ish. Um, no, it, it is survivable for a fully trained astronaut. Absolutely, no problem at all. What do they do to people then to um, to train them to to stand that? So, well, they, they spin them around in a lot of centrifuges. Um, <laughs> it's also about the well, way if you, you design. Survive, then you're destined now, to be an astronaut. If no, you die in the process, then are you probably not going to make it? The main reason, I mean, yeah, 10G is absolutely horrible. But the way a spacecraft is designed, you always see them lying on their backs. The reason for that is because the force will go through their chest, so it won't go from head to toe. It'll so go it's not compressing your spine no, downward. It's not, kind of not doing anything you. like that, not, not hitting your head. It's deliberately designed to go through your chest. And obviously the way the suits are designed are designed to pull these sorts of G-forces. Actually, the centrifuge I went in, which is this ancient centrifuge um, at Farnborough in southern England, that was actually designed to go up to 18G. Uh, when they, okay, okay, so we've got to space. So you've you've thing, withstood the Gs. Yeah, you've what, withstood, withstood the thing. And the next short-term problem is nausea. Almost all astronauts, however well experienced, however well conditioned, however many times they've done parabolic flights in what's called the Vomit Comet, which are this plane that goes in these parabolic trajectories around, they get sick. Um, And the Soyuz spacecraft, which is the only one you can use to get to and from space right now, has... um, it, it's, it rotates slowly. So you've got a, a window there. and it's So you're in this spacecraft that's you're suddenly feeling weightless, but also the spacecraft around you is rotating. So you can't even look. You know they always say if you're on a roundabout or something, 
got your hand over your I mouth. I get so <laughs> badly travel sick. I'm actually yeah. feeling. So, I've been seasick on that. a pedalo. You know, they I get say really if you sick. feel if you feel ill, you know, you don't look out the side windows, you look out the front. But imagine that this thing is spinning. So imagine your car that's spinning as well. Oh, so that's that's that. Once you're in space, the other thing that happens is your fluids tend to move around your body. You're not subjected to gravity, and they tend to swell. So people in the in your head. So people, so astronauts really do have big heads. So fluids tend to pull in your head. So you get the feeling of permanent head cold in space. More serious are things like muscle loss and bone loss. Again, it's it's down to gravity. So this is in the, when you're in the zero g environment. Yeah, when you're into time. when you're in this microgravity environment, you've got loss of bone, um, loss of muscle, which is why astronauts have to exercise. I mean, they had a serious amount of exercise. You've got to get some day. impact going. Hours on of exercise. Muscles. Yeah, so they're they're attached with lots of bungee cords, elastic, all sorts of other things to treadmills. They're shifting weights um, and designing the space station to move weights is quite interesting because you can't just stick if you stuck weights in the side of the move them around the space station if you move the weight the space station moves so you've got a equal and opposite force there so they're very clever designs to make sure if they're moving a weight they don't shift the space station's orbit or anything (laughs) like that um it's it's also a a problem with the uh, urine recycling system on the international space station so there's a build-up of get a build-up of calcium in the system, as well as a result of this calcium being lost from astronauts' bones. We've mentioned already, Chris has mentioned, the the radiation danger in space. You're pretty well protected in low Earth orbit because you're within, you're in this realm, really, of the Earth's magnetic fields. You're protected by this magnetic bubble around the Earth. But if you venture beyond that, then you can get zapped. Eyesight deteriorates in space. You can get brain damage from uh, cosmic radiation. Disease, the immune system uh, deteriorates in space. They don't entirely know why. Um, There's been lots of studies on that. There's also, of course, psychological effects of being in space. So there's issues of depression. So right now on the International Space Station, they're doing an experiment on comfort foods. So they're giving astronauts... Sending them chocolate and stuff. They literally are using chocolate pudding. So they're giving them tasks they don't like to do on the space station so they give them make them you've got to go the and clean station. out the urine literally <laughs> yeah, it, is, it is that stuff so go clean the toilet sounds like what I do with my go kids vacuum. <laughs> yeah. do you give you some so they're looking at this because if you're going to go to Mars you're looking at at least a two year mission there and back so they're looking at you know if you vacuum and you don't get any reward how do you feel if you vacuum and you get a nice chocolate pudding they vacuum love and the it chocolate looks really puddings. nice then you could that's your reward look you've made a good job of that <laughs> everyone, no, everyone I, want, I want chocolate no, no one Thinks I that, think Chris. I think for me my my biggest issue with it would be cooped up with that many people. I mean, I get travel sick, so I'd, I'd have to contend with that. I would just want to kill people, basically. <laughs> well, Kat, the feeling might be mutual. <laughs> I mean, I've been in the studio with you guys for an hour, and I am kind of ready to kill right now. It's um, you have got the view. I mean, you know, there are lots of compensations for being in space. You can look out at the Earth below. It's the best view. Well, the best view in the world. It's you could phenomenal. say, but not in the world. It's but a, not in the, the world. The best view, view the world. of the world. So there are some fantastic compensations. Would there. you Would you want to go into space? I would like to be in space. I don't want to get there. Have I think I- the getting there, having been on the centrifuge, having sat inside a Soyuz simulator, having felt just how cramped... It's claustrophobia is an issue, but obviously they don't select astronauts with claustrophobia. <laughs> it's a fairly fundamental thing. But, I mean, wouldn't that be amazing to sit inside the International Space Station and look out at that amazing, almost like bay window on the world. How about you, Chris? 
I think I'm with Richard. I'm scared about the journey and I'd quite like to have the experience, but I don't think I'd like the health consequences now I know what they are. Thanks, Richard. Yeah. Uh, Very briefly, Max, space or not? Yes, no. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Getting there wouldn't be very good. It took me about 19 years to pluck up the courage to go on a roller coaster, so I'm not sure how well I would handle it. (laughs) Oh, well, there you go. So, Max, we have another question here for you from Paige Russell, who says, Lately, I've been getting a strong feeling when I think something specific is going to happen. Some things are small and irrelevant and some things are very overwhelming. For example, I was doing my hair for school one morning. I had a feeling my best friend was going to do the exact same hairstyle, and she did. Uh, is this normal? Can Paige predict the future? What do you reckon? Uh, well, whilst I would never want to sort of disprove uh, Paige's ability to predict the future, um, what I think is going on is, is a sort of classic uh, psychology cognitive bias, which is called confirmation bias. And this is a tendency of, of people to actively seek out and assign more weight to evidence that confirms a belief or a hypothesis they haven't and ignore or underweigh that evidence that sort of doesn't fit their hypothesis or their beliefs. And in essence, it means we we choose to believe things that are in agreement with our own beliefs. And importantly, that is the interpretation of information, but also, um, in this case, uh, the recall of memories. So the the sort of strong feeling she speaks of would only become strong once the feeling has been confirmed. Uh, So in a sense, it becomes true. So the friend doing the same hairstyle on that day the memory of having that feeling would become stronger because it actually happened in the same way that on the same day she may have predicted something else like scoring a goal in some sort of match and because that didn't happen she just sort of forgot about it and it's something actually that that psychics take advantage of when they're giving out readings and by giving sort of largely ambiguous statements uh, the psychic can let confirmational bias do the rest as clients can sort of pick and choose those that apply to their own life. Did we talk about deja vu yet in the programme? (laughs) I'm sure we've had this one already. (laughs) We've got a question now for Richard. What are the problems that we face with international cooperation in space projects? How do we get all the different agencies around the world with all the different technologies all working together? Well, it all comes down to money, essentially. The classic experiment really with international cooperation in space is the International Space Station. That costs an estimated, but it's really difficult to get a number, but a hundred billion US dollars. It is the most expensive machine we have ever built as humans. And the only way you can do something like that, although it's evolved, is in cooperation. And what's extraordinary, despite the the geopolitical problems on Earth between the United States and Russia, for instance, and Europe and Russia, for instance, in space, everyone is cooperating. There was even when I was at the uh, the last launch I went to, I do a lot of the launch commentaries for for rockets, particularly from from Russia. So, so I was, cool. it, it is, it is no, it is, <laughs> it so is really cool. It is really cool. So I was in Russian Mission Control. There was this rather nauseating group hug between the heads of the Russian and the American and the European uh, space agencies. This is a true cooperation in space. So it is, it is extraordinary, and it, it does all really come down to uh, to the money. Uh, I mean, you know, even within Europe, say for example, the Rosetta this amazing spacecraft that's landed the Philae lander on a comet. This is an extraordinary thing to do. That cost 1.4 billion euros. I mean, that, that's actually not a very great, not very much money for doing something remarkable. But that's all European nations in cooperation. Now, we know European nations are not great at cooperating with each other all the time. We know scientists are not always great at cooperating 
with each other all the time. But to do something like this, the only way to do it is to pull money in from various places. So there's an awful lot of cooperation. There's cooperation between Europe and Russia with the new ExoMars project. So the only way Europe could get enough money to get a rover on Mars was to go in with the Russians who provide the launchers for this project. There's a lot of cooperation between Europe and China. What there isn't is cooperation between the United States and China. So what we could have in a few years' time or a few decades' time is a European astronaut, for example, the British astronaut Tim Peake, on a Chinese space station or even a, a Chinese moon base but no American involvement. So that's the only sticking point, really. But, yeah, to do it, you have to cooperate. That sounds like the plot of a James Bond film right there. A question for you now, Chris, and this is from Peter Riddell, who says, Humphrey Davy invented the safety lamp in 1815 to prevent naked flames igniting the so-called fire damp gas down in mines. Um, Air could enter or there would be no flame for the lamp. So why didn't the fire damp gas also enter? What's going on here? Right. Well, it's a really good observation because obviously explosions in mines where there's lots of trapped gases because the coal, when it got cooked into coal, would have also produced gas. And that gas is often in pockets down these mines and it can escape, it can build up. And that's why miners took canaries down coal mines. If it mixes with oxygen and a naked flame, whoosh, you can have an explosion. And this frequently still happens today. And obviously people didn't have torches. They would take down a coal mine candles and things. So what Humphrey Davy did was to say, well, how do we make these lamps safe? And in fact, you can do your own experiment to show how a Davy lamp works, because if you light a candle and you take a gauze or your kitchen sieve will work, actually. Using a metal sieve, not a plastic yep, sieve. a plastic one, that okay. won't work. That will, well, it will work, but not, Very not the way we <laughs> anticipate. But if you put that over the flame, what you'll see is that where the metal goes across the flame, the flame stops at the metal. And through the metal will come smoke and carbon particles, but it won't burn on the other side of the metal. And the reason for this is that metal is a very good conductor of heat. It robs all of the hot gases which are mixing with oxygen and reacting of the energy which enables the chemical reaction to be sustained, which means that the gases go through the sieve at an insufficient temperature on the other side to continue the reaction and burn, and therefore there is direct air contact with the flame and the fire damp will go into the lamp, but it won't be able to trigger an explosion outside the lamp. So it's about stopping the fire going out rather than the gas coming in. Correct. I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. So thank you very much to Georgia Mills for production and also to our studio guest, Richard Hollingham, Max Sanderson, Chris Smith, and I've been Katani. Next week, we'll be pitting the animal kingdom against each other to see some of the fantastic things mini beasts and megafauna can do as scientists pitch their favourite amazing animals. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Katani and thank you for listening.